Don't stop me if you've heard this one, because you've heard this one. There was a little girl sitting in her science class at school. She was in maybe third grade, and they were learning about fish. It was biology, and and because it was just third grade, they were only learning about a few particular fish. And as the lesson kind of wrapped up, the teacher said, you know, there's also much bigger fish than this. All the ones that we've been looking at are small, but there's, there's enormous fish. There's all different kinds of fish. And this little girl raised her hand, and she said, what kind of fish was it that swallowed Jonah? And the teacher started to kind of have a heart attack. Like he could hear the ACLU sharpening their pens and everything. And, and he said, you know, I, I don't know that I really believe that happened. And I think even a lot of religious people think it's just a story, just a parable or something. So I don't think that a fish could really swallow a person. I mean, and he started to get kind of bolder as he started to talk. And he said, how is it that the person could breathe? And what would, what would they drink? And how would they, how would they live for three days inside a fish? And the girl, she was incensed, and she said, well, when I get to heaven, I guess I'll ask him. And the teacher said, well, in the Bible, Jonah is not that good of a guy. What if he didn't go to heaven? And the girl thought about that for a second and said, well, then you ask him. (laughs) Honestly, in addition to providing a laugh, for me, that story actually kind of highlights one of the problems with the way that we view certain stories in the Bible, certain events in the Bible, and and entire books of the Bible, where we focus in on individual details and miss the point of the book. My Hebrew prof in seminary told me that his Hebrew professor, when he was in seminary, a world-famous guy, an actual expert, had spent a good two-thirds of the semester when he was supposed to be teaching them all about biblical Hebrew, instead focusing in on the book of Genesis and how long the creation account took. Now, is there a place to have that discussion? Absolutely. But if the details override the overarching story, the whole point of why God placed these things in his word, then we wind up missing the forest for the trees. And in Jonah, there has often been just this ongoing debate about what kind of fish was it? As if that's really the question that this book is drawing us in and challenging us to wrestle with. What kind of fish was it? And I can answer that question for you right now here this morning, if you're willing to believe me. The answer is it was a dagavol. That's, that's the kind of fish, a dagavol. Now the word dag is simply Hebrew for fish. Uh, You remember Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines? Dog just means fish, which means, by the way, if you wanted to kind of informally greet a fish in Hebrew, you could say, what's up, dog? That's bad. I'm sorry. It's a dad joke. But that's the word dog. And then gavol is this key word we keep seeing in the book of Jonah, which simply means great, large. Uh, Remember that he was told, go to Nineveh, the great city. He went the other direction to the great sea. And then he goes into the boat and there's a great wind and a great storm. And then there's great fear. And now a great fish comes and swallows him. And someone would say, wait, hold on. That means that does tell us some information. There are details here because that means it wasn't a whale. People often talk about Jonah and the whale, but it couldn't have been a whale because a whale is a mammal and not a fish. Wrong. Yes, a whale is a mammal and not a fish, the way we classify them, but this word dog, it means the kind of creatures that swim around in the sea and, and live in the depths and that are, that are go down in the depths and live in the water, and it could include absolutely a whale. We don't, we don't really know. 
When you read some of the old commentaries, which I love to do, you, you read that it's either a whale or a dogfish, uh, which, which makes it a dog-dog, I guess. Um, the latter, apparently, uh, again and again, this story comes up about one was caught and was cut open, and there was a man in armor found inside. If it was a fish, a great fish, but not you know, an enormous whale, this might have been a lot more cramped and claustrophobic than what we often think of. You know, in the pictures I've seen, the depictions of, of Jonah in flannel graph or whatever, he's usually sitting inside the whale's stomach, and there's like a kind of a, a dull glow. There's, there's a little lighting in there, and it's very spacious. It's, it's luxurious. You know, I mean, you know, he's sitting kind of on the floor of the stomach, and you get the sense that if he had internet connection, he could order you know, a nice little table and maybe a lamp or two, and it would be rather a, a comfortable place. What if it wasn't at all like that? What if he was completely immobilized inside, trapped inside the stomach of this fish, this dog-gavol? What if he could not move for days and only after that does he begin to pray a prayer of repentance to the Lord? Hopefully you're starting to see that although for some reason we've turned this into a cute story along with Noah's Ark, Neither of them is cute at all. In fact, to some degree, both of them are sort of like horror movies that unfold in real life. This one, the horror of horrors for this prophet Jonah who was trying to flee from God. Now, we do know that the, the creature in question was not Leviathan because that itself is a Hebrew word that's been kind of escorted into English. It's the word for the sea serpent or sea monster that lives in the depths and kind of represents the unknown and the chaos and all the fearful things and horrors that live down there. But if we keep reading the scripture, we find that even Leviathan is created by God and under God's sovereign rule. So that's not a question we want to focus on. What kind of fish was it? The other question that always comes up, and we've touched on it a couple times already, is was this a real historical event or is this a parable or something? And of course, this morning Steve read for us that passage in Luke, which we see also in other Gospels, where Jesus says that just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It seems to indicate to us that Jesus believed this really happened, that if we believe in a literal death and resurrection of Christ, we should believe in a literal fish swallowing Jonah and then subsequently vomiting him up. However, uh, even just a few weeks ago in our Sunday school class where we're studying uh, inductive Bible study method, someone asked the question, why couldn't this be kind of just a reference to a well-known story. Like, you can probably imagine uh, a politician getting up and giving a speech and saying, look, just like Dorothy walked down that yellow brick road, we're going to walk down this golden road I'm laying out toward prosperity and a new America or something. And, and yeah, someone could conceivably do that. I think more telling is the word that Jesus uses as he's describing what happened with Jonah. He talks about the sign of Jonah. And the Greek word there is the semeon, which means a sign, a wonder, a miracle. Something miraculous happening in order to show a truth to the people. By the way, when I was learning Greek in seminary, I had all these little mnemonic devices to remember the Greek words. And, and the way I remembered semeon is I, I imagined someone watching Jesus multiplying the bread and fish and, and going, semeon, that's really amazing. Whatever works, right? 
But that's what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to give you a sign, which is my death and resurrection. And it corresponds to the sign, the miracle, the wonder that was Jonah being swallowed by a whale. And so I think we want to err on the side of faith here which is not to err at all. I worry about the tendency to pick and choose which miracles we'll believe and which ones we don't so that the Bible and our Lord are a little less embarrassing to us. Remember, Jesus believed in this miracle, and he said, if anyone is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him when my Father comes and all the holy angels with him. We believe God spoke the universe into existence. We believe that he created everything by special creation, and we believe that he is in control of everything he's created. Now, when this question of whether or not this happened in literal history comes up, an article is often referenced, and it's an old one, going back to 1927 in the Princeton Theological Review, describing a whaling ship called the Star of the East, which here, let me just read some of this article. It says, The Star of the East was in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands, and the lookout sighted a large sperm whale three miles away. Two boats were launched, and in a short time, one of the harpooners was enabled to spear the fish. Trigger warning, yeah, this is, I, I'm actually bummed out by this, but this is what they were doing in order to get their livelihood, for their, their income. The second boat attacked the whale, but was upset by a lash of its tail, and the men thrown into the sea. One man being drowned, and another, James Bartley, having disappeared, could not be found. The whale was killed, and in a few hours was lying by the ship's side, and the crew were busy with axes and spades, removing the blubber. Some days you feel like you have a bad job. Be glad you aren't working with axes and spades removing the blubber from a dead whale. They worked all day and part of the night. Next morning, they attached some tackle to the stomach, which was hoisted onto the deck. The sailors were startled by something in it which gave spasmodic signs of life, and inside was found the missing sailor, doubled up and unconscious. He was laid on the deck and treated to a bath of seawater which soon revived him. He remained two weeks a raving lunatic. At the end of the third week, he had entirely recovered from the shock and resumed his duties. Bartley affirms that he could probably have lived inside this house of flesh until he starved, for he lost his senses through fright and not from lack of air. He remembers the sensation of being thrown out of the boat into the sea. He was then encompassed by a great darkness, and he felt he had, he felt he had slipped along a smooth passage of some sort that seemed to move and carry him forward. The sensation lasted but a short time, and then he realized he had more room. He felt about him, and his hands came in contact with a yielding, slimy substance that seemed to shrink back from his touch. It finally dawned upon him that he had been swallowed by the whale. He could easily breathe, but the heat was terrible. It was not of a scorching, stifling nature, but it seemed to open the pores of his skin and draw out his vitality. His skin was exposed to the action of the gastric juice. Face, neck, and hands were bleached to a deadly whiteness and took on the appearance of parchment, never recovering their natural appearance, though otherwise his health did not seem affected by his terrible experience." I find that very interesting, but I don't need it. Because there's no need to explain away through natural phenomenon what is clearly presented as a miracle. Just like we don't want to say, oh yeah, sometimes wind can blow through the sea of reeds and just naturally part it and see that's what happened. Or, or maybe when Jesus was born, it wasn't a, a special star that God caused to shine. It was just the lining up of several other stars and we can describe... No, if it's a miracle... The whole point is it's God using nature apart from its ordinary workings. 
And especially when we have a miracle that foreshadows the greatest miracle of all, our salvation by Jesus' death and resurrection, we don't want to try and explain it away. Scripture describes again and again our being in a hopeless situation. We've been cast down. We've fallen into a pit. More often, we've jumped into the pit. And it's described as a slimy pit. A miry pit, muck and mire, mud and mire. And once you're in that slippery, slimy pit, you can't get out. I imagine that when you touch the side, you feel a slimy substance that yields to the touch. But you can't, you're stuck, you can't get out unless God saves you, unless God reaches in and rescues you. Psalm 69, we read, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I imagine this is very much how Jonah felt while he was in the belly of the sea monster. I have questions for him that I will ask him when I get to heaven. If he didn't make it, you ask him. First of all, how long does three days feel in the pitch black smelly innards of a fish? I got to imagine it feels a lot longer than what it truly is. Secondly, what do you think while you're being swallowed whole, I imagine you don't immediately think, oh, great, I'm being rescued. I, I can't imagine that it didn't cross Jonah's mind. God is so angry with me that he won't just kill me all at once. He won't just let me drown or dash my head against the side of the boat as I am cast overboard. He's so angry that he's going to have me slowly digested like in Return of the Jedi when, when Jabba the Hutt says that his enemies are going to find a new definition of pain and suffering as they are slowly digested by the Sarlacc. Sure, pretend you don't catch that reference. I know, I know there's some nerds out there. And Jonah had been essentially swallowed twice the way it's described and presented in the scriptures. First, he's swallowed by the sea, and then he's swallowed after he's swallowed by the sea by the great fish. This is absolutely hitting bottom. I mean, when I use that phrase, I'm usually being kind of sarcastic. You know, I say, oh, that's hitting bottom. I mean, like someone was Baptist and now they're Methodist or something. This is hitting bottom. And he's been going down, down, down. And I know I've been saying this a lot, but remember, key words are important in studying books of the Bible. And in this book, we see the juxtaposition of going up. God tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against them. Arise, it's repeated again and echoed by the, the captain of the ship when he says, what are you doing sleeping? Arise and call out. And instead of arising, going up, we see Jonah choosing to go down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship after paying the fare. And then once on the ship, he goes down into the belly of the ship, below deck. And if there's any way he can go down further, he's going to. And there is. He's now thrown overboard. It goes down into the sea, and then once in the sea, he is swallowed up and carried down into the very depths of the ocean. And what a descent this is. I mean, remember our earlier snapshot of Jonah, this prophet of Yahweh, who we see in 2 Kings faithfully discharging his duty. He had the gifts to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. That's why God called him. And, and he could do it, and he would do it, but that his heart was hardened. How far he falls, not just out of God's service, but out of the world of men, out of the light of day, exiled down into the depths of the ocean, into the digestive tract of some sort of sea creature. And in the scriptures, under the sea, I know that in The Little Mermaid, under the sea symbolizes a fun time of singing and anthropomorphic animals, 
uh, and it's hotter under the water, under the sea, and all this stuff. But that is the opposite. In scriptures, the sea represents chaos. The chaos, the dangers of, of the world, and beneath the sea, if it claims you, it drags you down to the grave. And yet an odd thing happens. This sea creature, this devourer, rather than being his death, actually becomes his ark, his salvation. The NIV says the Lord provided a fish, and the fish went and swallowed Jonah. The King James says the Lord prepared a fish. I think the ESV is by far the best saying the Lord appointed a fish because the word used here comes from the root that means number, to number something. Not that God created a special fish for this occasion, but that in the, the vast catalogs of all of the creatures that lived beneath the sea, God had marked one of them for this particular task. Number 2771849, whale or dogfish or whatever it is, known informally as Ned. He will be the one. From eternity past, God knew there would be a fish. He had appointed a fish. God appoints these things in our lives that we think are nothing but chaos, we think are nothing but chance or bad luck. We look around and we don't see God at work at all, but remember, God has appointed and God is in control even of these creepy things we can't imagine that are swimming around at the bottom of the sea, all chalk white with bulbous eyes, even though they're blind, these horrific things. God knows about each and every one. God has numbered them. God has appointed everything in creation, and he uses all of it. For his purpose and his glory. Just as by God's providence it was allotted to Jonah to be cast out of the ship, so it was appointed by God for him to be rescued, saved alive by this great sea creature. And so in the midst of chaos, in the midst of the storm, God is in control. Think of Psalm 95. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Or the questions that God poses to Job in Job 38 when he is challenging, how is it that you think you can critique the way I'm working? How can you tell me you didn't get a fair shake? How can you tell me none of this is the right way? Asking him all these questions. One of them is, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God is in control of all of these things. Compare this with the general pagan mythologies of the ancient Near East, which explain the order of the natural world by a sort of deadlock in an epic primal battle between a god, like, for example, Baal or Dagon, and the monsters of the chaos of the deep. And they're kind of stuck, and that's why there's order. And then when things start going badly, and there's a drought, or there's a plague, oh, that means that the chaos is winning, or, or perhaps that Baal isn't smiling on us anymore. Uh, and then we try and strengthen him and build him up so that he can push chaos back. But in the scriptures, God is the God of all of creation. He is absolutely in control. It's worth pointing out that in addition to representing chaos in general, the sea also represents the nations, the Gentiles, the nations, the pagans all around Israel, and how the chaos of the nations always threatens to swallow them up, and yet God, being faithful, keeps them safe and keeps that from happening. That despite being surrounded by all these enemies, God is still in control and he keeps them safe. 
except when he doesn't. And the latter part of the Old Testament is kind of the story of God's people recognizing that truth. God's even in control of these nations that are all around us. God is even in control of all these pagans who worship other gods, and yet our God is sovereign. You see this dawning on them when you read Jeremiah 29. When they've been exiled and they arrive in the midst of the sea, they're now in Babylon. That is under the sea, spiritually speaking. And they feel like it's all over. And then God tells them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. There was this thought in the ancient world where you leave your land and you go to some other land, your God is no longer in control. Now you've got to go by their God's rules and worship their God and sacrifice to their God. And this God, Yahweh, says, no, I am in control everywhere. You can even, you can even work for the welfare of this city. Because I am in control. I've sent you there, and after 70 years, I'll bring you back. And to Jonah, I've sent you into the ocean. I've sent you into the sea, and after three days, he's going to bring him out. And when Israel is swallowed up by this foreign empire, and when Israel is swallowed up by foreign empires and exiled, not to the bottom of the sea, but to the ends of the earth, God is still with them, and God is still appointing Remember, being swallowed up is a fairly common image in the scriptures for being thoroughly defeated by an enemy. It comes up again and again. And when you defeat a people and destroy their temples and rip them from their homes and send them into exile, you know what doesn't ever happen? They don't, they don't even survive as a people. They certainly don't thrive. And they absolutely don't come back again to their land. Unless there's a God who is in control and he is causing these things to happen. This goes against the entire worldview of all the other peoples in the ancient Near East. If I defeat you, I've defeated your God. My God is stronger. But when Yahweh allows his people to be taken into exile, taken into the sea, as it were, he is not defeated. He's correcting them. He's disciplining them. This is true of Jonah. This is true of Judah. And then when Christ dies on the cross and Satan glories in what he's done, thinking he's defeated God, the same thing is true. He has not defeated him. In fact, he's sealed his own fate. All of this is a real test for Jonah's faith. Is God really powerful in the forgotten depths of the sea where no one has been and survived to talk about it, where weird creatures that no human has laid eyes on live Sure, it's one thing to assume that he's God beyond the borders of Israel, but down into the chaos of the depths? Well, that's already been established, though. Isaiah 43, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. It was true when talking about them passing through the Red Sea. God was in control of the sea and he kept them safe. And it's true when Jonah is now down in the depths. By the way, this understanding of the imagery of the sea is also helpful to illuminate the story of Peter walking on the waves. He was walking on the midst of the angry sea with the tempest blowing and and the chaos representing in their minds the chaos of the nations around them and the unknown realms and threatening at any moment to drag him down into the grave, into Sheol. 
and yet he trusted Christ for a time. What does this tell us? It tells us that anything you're facing today, God is the Lord of it. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, there is not one thumb breadth of the universe about which the Lord Jesus does not say, it is mine. But recognize that God can use these things however he wants. When we comfort ourselves with these ideas, we usually apply them this way. Well, God's in control, so he will help me overcome this thing. He will help me do away with this thing. But the book of Jonah calls us to ask the question, has perhaps God appointed this thing? Jonah has run from God. Then he has turned to the crowd to help carry him away from God's presence. And so God says, hey, I'm going to isolate you from the crowd. You're going to have to deal with me because there's nobody else down in the belly of the fish with you. Not them, not the people of Tarshish, not the people of Joppa. It's just you and me. Friends, when you're carried along by something beyond your control and you say, God, if you're so powerful, why is this happening to me? It is wise to consider whether God may be doing what he was doing in the case of Jonah bringing you back to shore where he would have you be, turning you back in the right direction. Perhaps the end of a sinful relationship, a change in employment, a humbling that brings you back to the throne of the God you serve. These things are not necessarily evils. Sometimes they're necessary evils. And of course, in the book of Jonah, as throughout the Old Testament, the word evil should be understood to also encompass the idea of just disaster, of bad stuff happening, not necessarily morally evil. God will use disasters to bring you back around. The book of Revelation speaks of trumpets, trumpet judgments. God has, for all of human history, used the results of the curse of sin to open people's eyes and show them what they need. When he lectured on this passage, John Calvin ended with this prayer. Grant, Almighty God, that as thou settest before us this day thy holy prophet as an awful example of thy wrath against all who are rebellious and disobedient to thee, O grant that we may learn so to subject all our thoughts and affections to thy word, that we may not reject anything that pleases thee, but so learn both to live and die to thee, that we may ever regard thy will, and undertake nothing but what thou hast testified is approved by thee, so that we may fight under thy banners, and through life obey thy word until at length we reach the blessed rest which has been obtained for us by the blood of thy only begotten Son, and is laid up for us in heaven through the hope of his gospel. Amen. So there is something to consider about how this book intersects with our lives, but more important than that is to consider how this book intersects with the great story of Scripture, the meta-narrative, which is the story of Jesus. We see Jesus in all of the Old Testament, and we see him very clearly in Jonah if we are looking for him. Jesus actually refers to the, the sign of Jonah in two different ways when responding to demands for miracles and signs. We'll talk about the other one a little later in our, in our study, but one of them is what we already read in Matthew 12 today, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Christ was in the heart of the earth. He was killed and he forgave those who murdered him. Lay down his life. He said, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. Not just for his family or his friends or his followers or his people, but for all people. 
Good news of great joy, which will be for all the peoples. But Jonah, Jonah didn't get this. Now, Jonah loved his country, which is fine. I mean, we just read that passage that says, seek the welfare of the land in which you dwell. Even when you're somewhere as a sojourner, an alien, as we are here in this world, seek the welfare. Don't despise the place God has placed you. But he loved his country more than he loved God's word. And he loved it with a very human, very flawed love that easily morphed into unloving zeal against outsiders. Like Peter, Jonah was brave to a fault. Peter said, I'll draw my sword and face the mob. Jonah said, go ahead and throw me down into the abyss. I'm not afraid. And both would gladly proclaim God's coming judgment on people who reject the one true God, but that courage and that zeal would not easily translate into loving their enemies. I don't know about you, but I have a little of that in me. I think we've seen a lot of that in the news lately, sadly. And we see a lot of it in the church visible And I fight against it in myself. But I have good news for you. If you find yourself struggling against this sort of hard-heartedness, like Peter, who denied Jesus in his darkest hour, Jonah is restored, lifted up after he fell, and given another chance. Now, when I tell people that Jonah is a book about Jesus, first and foremost, I often get the same sort of question. Like, if he is such a bad prophet, which he is, How can he be foreshadowing Jesus, who is the greatest of all prophets? And what you need to understand is the way that types work, types in the Old Testament. These shadows that fall back from the cross into the Old Testament, they have very little overlap with the lives of the people involved in foreshadowing. God is at work in this story in ways that we see clearest after the fact. But there are specific points of connection. And I want to spend the rest of our time today just laying out four of those points to show you how it is that the book of Jonah is about Jesus. First of all, you have obviously the three days. Three days in the heart of the earth, three days in the belly of the fish. This does not mean 72 hours. Uh, By the Hebrew reckoning, one full day and parts of two other days is three days. They, They understood the idea of fractions, but this is just culturally how they reckoned time. And three is a significant number. We've talked before about how seven is the number of completeness and perfection in in biblical numerology, but three is more specific yet. It's a reference to completeness in God's provision, completeness in God's plan and his perfect eternal counsel. It calls us back to the idea of the Trinity, the three in one, that God himself is three persons in one essence, all three persons working together together as we read in the scriptures. We have a natural sense of of the idea of threeness, bringing about a a conclusion, a completeness of a plan or a story. We have three-act plays. That's the most common thing. Three acts in movies, in novels. It's satisfying that way. And in the third act is where you have the resolution or in the scriptures, the resurrection The the scriptures themselves are a story with three parts, creation, fall, and redemption. Yeah, there's consummation. That's kind of the epilogue after the problem is already solved and the conflict resolved. But the story of that conflict's resolution, creation, fall, redemption, and in the third act comes the resolution. This is very much universal. In, In the Hebrew scriptures we see in Hosea 6, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. 
Three is significant. In fact, we see in Jonah 3, 3, whoa, that it takes three days for him to walk from one end of Nineveh to the other, declaring the message God has given him about how after three days, God will destroy them. So there's the three days. Secondly, there is the foreshadowing of Gentiles being converted, of Gentiles coming to faith in the God of the scriptures, the God of Israel. Just as Jonah was called to bring the warning of judgment and the gospel message of grace to the Gentiles in Assyria, and by his going down into the sea, into the belly of the whale, that was able to happen. By going down into the heart of the earth, Jesus opened the way for all peoples to repent and come to God. Again, that's good news of great joy. It's very ironic because the one thing Jonah does not want to do is convert Gentiles, and he's already accidentally done that, and he will do it again before the book is out. So we see the the kingdom of God expanding, and that is foreshadowed here in the book of Jonah. That's the work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we see one man's sacrifice bringing salvation to many. One man offering himself to die to satisfy the storm of God's wrath. And of course, Jonah is not even really a good prophet, not in this moment. But God is still using him to do this, just like he used wicked Caiaphas when he prophesied by the Spirit and said, it is better that one man should die, that the whole nation not perish. God was speaking through him because he was the high priest that year. So God is using Jonah, despite himself, to speak to us. These men were about to be swallowed up by the waves, stirred up by the tempest of God's wrath. And Jonah is is willing to be thrown upon it and, and take God's wrath. In the same way, all of mankind was about to be swallowed up by the waves of hell, stirred up by the tempest of God's wrath against sin, when Christ, as one of us, volunteered to give up his life to save ours. Fourthly, and finally, we see a connection, and if you want to get into details, look at details that point us to Christ, not arguments that get us no closer to the meaning of the book. In the detail of the prayer of the sailors in verse 14, we see foreshadowed what would happen when Jesus was condemned to death. In Jonah 1.14, the Gentile sailors pray, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This reminds us, of course, of the Gentile Pontius Pilate in Matthew 27 when he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, of course, just like with the one man offering himself as a sacrifice, just like with the converting of the Gentiles, just like with the three days, the the stories are different because the, the hearts and the attitudes of the prophets are different. In Jonah's case, the victim is the guilty one, and the sailors truly are innocent of his blood. In Christ's case, the victim is innocent, and it's the Gentile Pilate and all of humanity that are guilty while they insist on their own Only by the imputation of our sins to him is Jesus guilty of anything. But remember how zealously the people supported this idea. As he said, I am innocent of his blood, all the people answered, may his blood be on us and on our children. As Jesus offered himself up, rather than shrinking back from the notion, they said, let his blood be on us, the guilt be on us and on our children. And as a result, in this verse, we see an image of baptism. 
In baptism, it's a picture of us going under the water, a picture of going into the grave. We're swallowed up, in a sense, in death. And who meets us beneath the waters and carries us up into new life, just as he did with Jonah, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's a sign. We call these things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, signs tied closely to what they signify. The most common question I ever hear asked by unbelievers when it comes to matters of faith is, why doesn't God just give me a sign? Why doesn't he give me a sign and show me that he's here? Then I'd believe in him. Well, Jesus answers that question in the story of Lazarus. When the rich man is dead and he's in Hades and it's hot and he's thirsty and he says to Abraham, let me just return just for a minute and go back to the land of the living and warn my brothers that this is what awaits them. And Abraham says, they have the scriptures. They have the law and the prophets, the writings of Moses. And if they don't believe those things, they will not believe even if a man rises from the dead. We read in the scriptures about what God has done for us. And anyone who doesn't believe those will not believe, even if there's a sign or a wonder or a miracle. In fact, I've many times seen what can only be called a miracle take place in the life of such an unbeliever, only for them to write it off as coincidence or good fortune or or something, anything else, to avoid having to own Jesus as their Savior and submit themselves to him. Why is it that Jesus says no sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah? Because that sign is the sign to end all signs, the miracle to end all miracles. There's no greater sign than it. The God who became man was murdered by men and then raised again to life. And the world says, yeah, well, okay, but what else you got? Why doesn't God appear in the sky and write a message to me? We'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 3. But once Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, he doesn't do any miracles. He doesn't perform any signs. Jonah is the sign. And in the same way, Jesus said, I'm not going to be your monkey boy and perform for you. I am not going to do all these signs and wonders but this one. Save all these signs and wonders, save for this one, the greatest of all signs. I will be three days in the heart of the earth and I will buy the salvation for all who believe on me. He is the sign. And because Jesus has done this, we can together joyfully echo those words, let his blood be on us and on our children. His blood which buys our freedom from sin. His blood which makes us new, washes away our sin, and raises us up again to new life. May it be on us. Let's go to him now in prayer. Grant, Almighty God, that as thou settest before us this day thy holy prophets as an awful example of thy wrath against all who are rebellious and disobedient to thee, O grant that we may learn so to subject all our thoughts and affections to thy word that we may not reject anything that pleases thee, but so learn both to live and to die to thee that we may ever regard thy will and undertake nothing but what thou hast testified is approved by thee so that we may fight under thy banners and through life obey thy word until at length we reach that blessed rest which has been obtained for us by the blood of thy only begotten Son and is laid up for us in heaven through the hope of his gospel. Amen.